in this first service, but I'm thankful for our music team and just the song selection this morning and the way that it leads us into our time around God's Word. It's also a joy to be back with you all today. Um, many of you know we had the opportunity early this year, my wife and I, to go on a kind of a trip of a lifetime with a dear college professor. And it was really weird to, to be like, well, when did we have this class? And it was almost 20 years ago. And I was like, I'm saying almost 20 years ago, I've reached that season of life about things. Uh, but uh, we got to tour around some of the footsteps of Paul. And so I actually got to stand in Corinth just a few weeks ago. And uh, there are some pictures this morning. So I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit of what we learned there as we dive back into the life of the Corinthians and what was going on in their church. And it was, it was amazing to actually stand, as I said, there in the city of Corinth and look around. It didn't look anything like I had imagined. Uh, my mental picture was totally wrong. And it was interesting just to see uh, the, the landscape, see how the city was laid out. And it just made a lot of things click into place. Not just, not just what the city looked like, but how that would have impacted the people that lived there and the culture and what it would have been like just to live life in that, in that place and the challenges that they faced and what that, what that meant for the church. And it also struck me as well that as foreign as that was, a distant country, a distant culture, and so much time that has passed, so much of what they were dealing with is the same things that we're dealing with today. So many of the pressures facing their church are the same pressures that are facing our church today. Human nature doesn't change. And so even though I appreciated how wrong I was in a lot of my, my misconceptions, it also struck me how many similarities we share with those that have gone before us. And this morning as we are getting back into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're seeing Paul as he continues to work with this church, not only trying to help them with their struggles with individual sin, but he's also trying to help clear up corporate confusion, their misunderstandings and their struggles with how they function all together as a, as a church body. They were becoming this disorganized jumble of ethnic, class, and spiritual gifting competition. They were rife with jealousies and fleshly comparisons. And as a result, their identity as a church was becoming lost in a sea of conflict and confusion. And Paul is using the topic of spiritual giftedness here not only to tune up their understanding of the spiritual gifts themselves, but he's also showing them that they have a deficient view of the church entirely. And that if they will grasp the purpose, the nature, and the organization of the church, then a proper understanding of spiritual gifts and the use of them will follow naturally. And these lessons are essential for every generation of the church to revisit even if we are in a healthy church environment, if we fail to clearly understand these truths and to effectively pass them on to the next generation, our children will abandon them. And I think that is what we are all too often seeing around us, is generations of churches who have not come to know and love the purpose and the nature of the church, who are now scattering into a a whole variety of churches in confusion. I think some of these churches you could call, well, maybe the unchurch movement. You've probably seen this. People who are walking away from the formal gathering of God's people entirely in order to pursue instead just personal spiritual development. And as I was doing a little bit of research on, on this, that was the phrase I saw over and over, personal spiritual development. 
Church is any place, they would say, that you feel close to God. And organized religion, like gathering as God's people, is just seen as an obstacle that gets in the way of authenticity. You might also run in today to what you might call the professional church. And by that I mean churches that are structured around specialists who provide services to consumers. Christians are not woven together for the mutual building up of one another in Christ, but they faithfully attend and participate in services and programs led by specialists that promise to expertly solve all your spiritual problems and meet all your spiritual needs. And these churches can range anywhere from what you might call the therapy churches, where you come so that all of the spiritual specialists can make you feel better, to what you might call, and to be honest, there's a lot of Bible churches in this camp sometimes, what you might call the knowledge church, where you come to all of the academic specialists who are satisfied entirely when you're just able to get all the theological questions right on the quiz. Another popular option is the experience church. Many churches are built around the idea that the purpose of church is to create an environment in which a certain experience can be predictably had. And those churches can look wildly different from each other. Some of them are fueled by amazing rock bands, moody stage lighting, folksy communication styles. And in others, it's ancient rituals and iconography, candles, incense, and organ music with stained glass windows. Don't get me wrong, none of those things are inherently sinful. And wouldn't it be cool if there was like a ginormous stained glass window? Those are, those are awesome. I got to see a couple. Uh, but is a church successful when it's measured solely by its ability to give people a certain impression or experience every week? Don't forget social action church. That's a popular one these days. Churches that seem to understand their primary mission as simply community activism. Discipleship consists of learning how to organize, administer, and expand programs, campaigns, and agendas that further all manner of, manner of current social urgencies. The church is valued just as a place for social healing. And so care is taken that the pursuit of holiness or doctrine doesn't get in the way of that mission. Add to that questions of house churches or community churches or mega churches or ethnic churches or online churches or traditional churches or contemporary churches, denominational churches or independent churches. And you can see how it gets confusing, does it not? How is a Christian today to know how they are to understand the heart, the nature, the purpose of the church and where they as an individual fit into that? To help with that, I, I got a book. Actually, I didn't get a book. I did a cheap Photoshop of another, another person's book. Here's our main, our main thought for this morning. Our understanding of basic church anatomy is essential to our personal Christian strategy. And what I mean by that is how you think of, conceptualize the Christian life and how you will live it depends in no small degree upon how you understand the basic anatomy and structure of this thing called the church. And it can look a lot of different ways, but it has to hold true to its basic anatomy if it is to be successful for the purpose for which Christ designed it. Last week, Paul belabored the point that there is a single source for all the diversity of gifts, of ministries, of effects, of manifestations of the Spirit. 
And that single source is the Spirit. What explains the existence and nature of the church? It is the blood-bought possession of Jesus Christ, and it is the Spirit-birthed, Spirit-equipped, and Spirit-directed people of God's own choosing. That's where we come from. This week, Paul is turning to give us the basic structure or anatomy of that peculiar people that the Spirit has put together. And trying to see the main point or the main theme that Paul's emphasizing is not too hard when you start highlighting key words in this passage. So if you want to look at last week's passage and this week's passage, you'll notice there's an emphasis. <laughs> last week's passage, we see Paul hammering on the one spirit, the one spirit, all the diversity of the gifts in the church coming from one place. And then this week, he's going to switch to hammer on one body, all of that diversity from one spirit for one body. And so with that in mind, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be reading it this morning, verses 12 to 19. As is our custom, I'd invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word if you are able. We do want to periodically remind you this is not a work of the flesh. If you need to sit, please sit. But as you're able to stand, I'd invite you to join, follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning to be able to come to this passage and be reminded of these simple truths. You are the great architect of salvation, and it is your plan in eternity past that has come to fruition through the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by his death... And resurrection has secured for himself the church, this peculiar people that you have had for your own choosing. And we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, we are each, just as you desired, being drawn to Christ and being knit together into one body, spread across the world and across time into those local gatherings such as we are in right now where we desire that the fullness of Christ's intention would be seen in us so that the fullness of Christ's glory may be expressed in all that we do. And we pray you would equip us better to do that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning is not a particularly complicated passage. My guess is 
Any of you could stand up here and pretty quickly explain what's going on just from a first reading. Paul's not trying to use complicated math here. But I do think you can boil this down into at least three clarifications that help us understand basic church anatomy. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's how I've organized it. Our first point is this. We are part of one body despite our differences. We are part of one body despite our differences. And in verses 12 to 13, I think it's important that we emphasize what these verses do and what they don't say, because I think there has been confusion around these verses as well. Paul introduces this illustration for us in verse 12 when he says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And here Paul is introducing this particularly important metaphor for the church. Technically, he has already referenced it once in the book of 1 Corinthians. If we've got any kids this morning that are bored, you can try to find it. But we'll, we'll reference it later. But this is the first time that he comes to teach on this topic and to introduce it as a theme that he wants to explore. This idea of the body. Paul is emphasizing unity in diversity through the Spirit, as he did last week, and now emphasizing diversity living in unity through the Spirit. So he's essentially flipping the thing around. Last week we saw diverse, excuse me, unity in diversity, one Spirit producing lots of different things. This week it's living in unity despite our diversity. All of these different things coming back together to serve one body. And the picture of a body is just the thing to help us grasp how this looks practically. Right? It's not too difficult to understand the picture. The body is a singular thing made up of a bunch of unique and different things. In fact, I looked it up this week, and the most quoted numbers I could find were that the body is made up of 650 different muscles, 206 different bones, and 78 organs. That's a lot of parts. And they all function together somehow to allow the body to live and prosper. I think this illustration not only is just a simple one, but I think it was a particularly impactful one for the people of Corinth. I think it would have impacted them two different ways. One is, I was really struck and impressed as I was traveling around through western Turkey and then down the coast of, of Greece to all these cities that Paul would have been visiting and writing to, I don't know that we appreciate today how much they idolized the human body, how much that was the ideal for them of beauty, of perfection. I've got a little slide to put up on the screen for you. The, the Greco-Roman world was infatuated with athleticism, health, and the human body. Corinth even particularly so as one of the cities that hosted one of the major regional games, if you recall, like the Olympian Games, Corinth oversaw the Isthmian Games that took place just outside the city. And, and for now, focus on Mr. Sitting Dude, who's looking very buff, not the other thing. I'll talk about the other thing in a minute. The Greeks knew what it took to try to keep every part of the body functioning as it ten, intended so that it would come together as a healthy whole and hopefully win a wreath at the games. But life didn't always look like the ideal Greek statue. Sort of like people today don't always look like their profile picture in real life. 
If you were sick, you would go to the local hospital in Corinth, which of course, like everything in their society, doubled as a temple to a pagan god, in this case, the god of healing, Asclepius. And there you would see something memorable that I think may have been in the minds of many Corinthians as they read this. If you would go to the temple for healing, it was customary to bring a sculptured terracotta replica of the body part that was ailing you. And that's what those are. They made the temples of Asclepius a bit morbid as they were filled with these clay limbs and body parts, often modeled with the deformities and painted with the signs of the disease that the person who came was suffering from. And so there was this sharp contrast. A body with all of its parts healthy and connected was their ideal of beauty and glory. And the alternative was a pile of dismembered parts that was grotesque and macabre. I think it was a picture Paul knew would immediately grab their attention. But there's another way that this is connected with the Corinthians, and that actually has to do with politics. This is a place that many of you have probably seen at least pictures of, and many of you have probably also visited. We had the chance in our time in Athens to go to the Acropolis of Athens and see the Parthenon. And we also had the good fortune of having terrible weather driving horizontal rains and wind that was shredding people's umbrellas. And that's how I have a picture of the Parthenon without a single other tourist in it. It was actually fantastic. They told us, you got to understand, this never happens that you get the Acropolis of Athens to yourselves. An amazing building. It was such a treat to see with my own eyes this structure that I'd seen pictures of and heard about my whole life. A symbol of architectural genius. But it was more than that. As our tour guide explained, it was also an incredibly powerful political statement. Our tour guide told us how when the Parthenon was being built in the 400s BC, a few centuries before Paul's time, the city of Athens was conducting this interesting experiment called representative democracy. A brand new idea in the world that instead of dividing society into people that matter and people that don't matter, the citizens of Athens decided to see what would happen if everyone came together and and valued the contributions of each part. And one expression of that was the construction of this Parthenon where everybody could see it as they approached the city. This building, he pointed out proudly, was not built using slave labor, but with the ingenuity and the sweat of the citizenry. They wanted everyone who approached the city of Athens to marvel at what democracy could accomplish. And it was in that context that this language of body in reference to a group of people was first introduced into the Greco-Roman world. And as Thistleton notes in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, this spread throughout their poets and philosophers to writers like Plato and Livy and Plutarch and Cicero, Dionysius of Halicarnassus, Epictetus, all of these writers and more coming together and, and reveling not just in the Athenian ideal, but later the Grecian ideal, the idea that in Greece we are a body where every part matters. Did it always work out that way in practice? No. But as an idea, it was treasured. And so Paul is pulling this language together. And as a number of commentators have noticed, he also coincidentally tends to group the exact same body parts in his descriptions here in 1 Corinthians that the poets did in their descriptions of the Grecian state. 
This picture would have been clearly understood not only as a depiction of their social ideals and the beauty of the human body, but as also their civic identity, pulling on the heartstrings of their personal aspirations and their national loyalties. And Paul's pulling all of this in and then pointing it to Jesus Christ. This, this idea that you've been sort of chipping around the edges of, Greeks, is what Jesus is actually accomplishing in its fullness through his spirit-gathered, assembled church. How does Christ accomplish this? Well, it's right there in verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And after last week, we knew this was going to be the answer, right? The answer to almost all of Paul's questions in this section is one spirit. That's how God is getting things done in his church. Some have looked at this passage, and I think, unfortunately, seen it as an invitation or as support for this idea that we as Christians are being called here to seek for a deeper level of Christian experience or maturity that follows some time after salvation, that we are to be seeking for some mystical baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are to be seeking out the ability to drink of the Holy Spirit in some special way that will give us either a greater measure of the Spirit that will enable a more Spirit-empowered life. And I want to challenge that notion that that's not the point Paul is making here at all. Paul is using the language that goes all the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus and announced in Matthew 3.11 that this is the one who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit described as being poured out upon the disciples in fulfillment of Jesus' promise on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.32-33. And that same language then tied directly to our salvation so powerfully in the letter that Paul wrote to young Titus in Titus 3, 4 to 7, when he, he writes this, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice in our passage and in all these passages we just talked about, we are not being called to seek baptism or to seek to drink of the Spirit. No, Paul's whole point is you need to remember that you are these things. He tells the Corinthians they were all baptized already into one body. He tells them not that they need to go and drink, but that they had all been made to drink already of one spirit. He's referring to this past reality that is true of the believer at the point of their salvation. And it is true regardless of whether they remember it or live accordingly. And it's also worth mentioning here that this baptism is different than water baptism. Paul is speaking here of the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is something that God spiritually pours out upon people at the point of faith in Jesus Christ. What we do when we get our big rolling bathtub up here is not that. It is a sign. It is a picture. It is a symbol 
whereby a person can declare publicly on the outside the realities of what God has already done on the inside. Much like communion symbolizes a similar internal reality in an external way that we will participate in later. More could be said on that. If you have specific questions, please come ask. I don't want to spend too much time on what this passage doesn't mean because I want us to focus on what the main point is. And that is this, that God has taken things the world doesn't like to put together and he has made a single body out of them through one Holy Spirit. The members of this body include people across ethnic boundaries and people across socioeconomic boundaries. But notice this. It doesn't do it by erasing the distinctions, but by joining those who are distinct. Does that make sense? The church is not a place where everyone comes and just sort of melts into this generic saint stereotype. No, part of the glory of the church is that it retains the people who are very different. Different in their backgrounds, different in their statuses, different in their standings, different in their giftedness. It retains all those distinctions and then weaves them together as members of one body. That's how Paul, a Jew, could travel and minister with someone like Titus that we just read from, a Gentile. That's how Aquila, a man, and Priscilla, a woman, could both be known as mature and knowledgeable disciplers. It's how, get this, Philemon, a slave owner, and Onesimus, his slave, could sit side by side at church and worship together. Paul is reminding the Corinthians to look around the room and see again how God has brought such diversity together of his own choosing. We didn't baptize ourselves. We didn't drink of our own. We were baptized. We were made to drink. And here we are. One body made up of a cross section of all that the human race has to offer. There's no room for pride here. There's no point in trying to make silly comparisons between the parts of the body either. We're the same body. But as you know, that won't stop us pesky humans from trying to complain about it anyway, will it? And that's Paul's next point. So let me sum up here before we move on to that second observation. And simply it's this, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a simple fact of our salvation that we have been made to be a part of one body. That is just who you are in Christ. No matter your background, no matter what labels you've got, no matter what status you have, if you are in Christ, you are a part of the body. If you have received the Holy Spirit as all those who have placed their faith in Christ have, this is your place. So consider this. If then we do not come together to function as a body, we are not then unmembered, but we are dismembered. We can't be unmembered because that's something Jesus did. He made you a part of the body. You are a member of the body. 
But if you cut yourself off from the life and the function of the body, the body can be dismembered, much like that scene in the temple of Asclepius. God is not looking for a wall where all the parts hang neatly in rows. He wants us knit together, whole, healthy, and functioning for one head and through one spirit. Another danger also lurks for the body, and that is the danger of the parts, even when joined together, not valuing and appreciating their diverse functions. And we can see that in verses 14 to 17. Despite all our differences, we're a part of one body. Secondly, we have a place in the body despite our opinions. It's always fun when Paul tells us, I don't care what you think. This is what's true. Verses 14 to 17 are very straightforward. Paul is giving us a simple observation of reality. And then he's going to point out that this reality is unavoidable, regardless of our opinions about it. And finally, he's going to end with a little more Captain Obvious to show us why that's a good thing. And so look at his observation there in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but but many. Right? Give you a moment to absorb those, those deep and profound words. He's just flipping the logic of the previous section around the other way, isn't he? If many unique members comprise one unified body, then a unified body, by definition, is made up of many unique members, right? If you go to KFC, which is becoming increasingly expensive to do, if you go to KFC and you order a bucket of chicken, You'll have options. They'll say, would you like white meat or dark meat, right? They can only do that because at KFC, all the chickens are dead and they've been cut up into little pieces. If you go to the country store and you order chickens for your backyard, they will not give you those options, will they? (laughs) Right? You have to take the whole chicken And you look for one that has all the parts functioning together because that's what makes a body different than lunch. We laugh and it seems so simple. And yet this basic truth is one that our human hearts buck against, isn't it? But Paul goes on. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body... It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Paul is being very repetitive here because he wants to make the point emphatic. And I think it's interesting how often we struggle with our new realities in Christ I think part of this is that we tend to have such a performance and, and flesh-driven view of, of how life is supposed to work, like, like that we need to earn and accomplish our Christian position and title. But almost all of the Christian life is exactly the opposite. It is not working to earn and to achieve. It is realizing what we have already been made to be. And then growing and living that reality out more and more day by day. 
We are not working to become his holy ones. We are his holy ones. And that is why we should live a holy life. We don't need to become a saint. We are a saint. And we need to learn how to act saintly. We have received grace. And because of that, we should stand in that grace. We don't try to live a life of dependence on God so that we can earn His favor. We try to live a life acknowledging and experiencing the reality of the favor we already have in Christ. We already have the Holy Spirit. And that is why we should learn to walk in Him. He's not the reward at the end of the journey of doing enough good things. He's the gift at the beginning of the journey of the Christian life that we can quench, yes, but we can't actually get rid of. He is and always will be there. And we learn how more and more to enjoy and to live out His leading in our lives. We don't cease to be any of the things that Christ makes us when we forget about them. But we can only truly enjoy what they are meant to be in our experience when we are consciously conforming ourselves by the grace of God to what he has made us to be. And this is another example. Imagine you woke up this morning and and noticed that your foot had sent an email to your brain saying, you know... I'm pretty sure this body thing is only for those amazing hands that look a little bit like me, but they've got those opposable thumbs and they're way better anyway, so I'm just going to check out and do nothing. I'm out. Would that change the fact that when you look down at what was in your shoe, you would acknowledge that it is still in fact a part of your body? Useless, non-functional, harmful to the whole, but you would stumble around with that as still part of the body, regardless of how the foot felt. And maybe you're feeling like, okay, duh, this is all a bit silly. I mean, being jealous of a hand or ears feeling that they're useless because they aren't eyes, like that, that really wouldn't happen in the church, right? And yet I think a form of this does happen all the time. I think it's so easy, though, though I think we would publicly say, no, 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 of course I know that's not the truth. I still think it's easy for us to feel things like, I mean, I'm not a really important part of the church. I'm not a gifted evangelist like that guy. I'm just good at like scheduling and spreadsheets and stuff. Right? The church doesn't really need me. I don't know where I fit in. I'd be terrified to ever stand in front of anybody and teach like the Bible and stuff. I just really like working with my hands. That's all I'm good at. The body doesn't need me. I'm not a part of it. It's for those kind of people. That's sad. And when we do that, we do the same thing that the Corinthians were doing. We begin to create this tiered hierarchy that looks just like what we see out in the world. And Paul is saying, no. Not in Christ. In Christ, we're not a corporate ladder. We're a body. And we need everyone As he goes on to explain there in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, eyes are awesome. They do really cool things. Nothing else in your body can. We've all studied probably the eyeball at some level in school and just went like, whoa. Weren't you glad you could hear about the eye? 
If everything were an eyeball, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, you couldn't smell. When parts of the body check out, the whole body loses functionality. Every part is affected, and sometimes even in ways it doesn't realize or appreciate. A number of us had the experience, for some random reason, of losing our sense of smell for a period of time in the last couple of years. And for many of us, you probably did not appreciate how nice having a working sniffer was until it was gone. And you could still live, you could still survive, you could still go about your life, but there was something missing. It was incomplete. It was not what it was meant to be. And I think some churches have never experienced entire functions or senses at all because those who are gifted and called for that purpose have not yet had the joy of being encouraged or of taking that step to realize how important a part of the body they are. Here's the truth here. Just like you cannot unmember yourself, but you can dismember the body. Similarly, we are not able to reject the body just by checking out, but we are able to disable the body by denying it the function of our giftedness. We are able to deprive the body as a whole of some of that which God desires and intends for the church to do. And so by the grace of God, let's not let that happen here at BBC. And I want to pause here just to state how incredibly thankful I am for the diversity of gifts and members here. And if you're new here, you need to understand there is a not-so-small army of people who work week in and week out to serve and to lead and to organize and to clean and to counsel and to comfort and to instruct and to disciple and to pray and to budget and to plan and to evaluate and to on and on and on for the glory of God and for the healthy functioning of this body. I'm thankful for our children who step up to serve in unexpected ways I'm thankful for our youths who are scattered in ministry throughout our church. As I mentioned, first service, we got some in the booth this morning helping out right now. I'm thankful for our singles, our young singles and our less young singles and how they're using their giftedness and their unique opportunities for time in strategic ways. I'm thankful for our parents who disciple their children and serve others. I'm thankful for our men who step up. I'm thankful for our women who step up. I'm thankful for our grandparents who are discipling the generations that are coming after them. I praise God for those of you with keen theological minds who help sharpen our collective understanding of Scripture. I'm thankful. I praise God for those of you who joyfully take bags of trash out to the dumpster with nobody watching and with joy in your hearts just because you love God's people and you want to make this place a place that can serve. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying this because this is my church. I am saying this because this is my church. This is the part of God's one body that I get to be a part of. And I am so thankful I get to be a part of it with all of you. And I hope every member of Valley Bible Church 
can share that same sense of belonging and appreciation for the unique gifts and function that you have, for what you bring to this body that would dismember or disable it without your presence here. There isn't a one of us that wasn't placed here for a purpose. And that is Paul's final point. We all have a purpose in the body, and that purpose comes directly from God himself. Look at verses 18 and 19. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? We tried to be clear about this when we instituted church membership here at VBC. Signing a piece of paper does not make you one iota more or less a member of the body of Christ. That is not something any human person has the power to do because that is something that Jesus Christ does at the point of your salvation when he gives you the Holy Spirit. You become a member of his body. Unfortunately, we're not as up to date on people's spiritual realities as he is, and so we ask you to raise your hand so we know you're here. But every single person who has the Spirit in them is part of his body, and if he has brought you here, it is because this is where he desires you to build up and to edify his body for the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't know what that's supposed to look like in your life. But I know that it is supposed to look like you being an integral part of this. What a privilege to know that nothing is happening in God's church just by accident. In his body, every part hand-placed, every part honored and valued, and every part having a responsibility then to seek to contribute to the body that function that God has called us to and gifted us for. This reality is inseparable from our identity as Christians. Do we see that? Our involvement in the church is not a secondary issue to our salvation because it is our salvation that makes us a member of the church. And that is why our understanding of basic church anatomy is essential to our personal Christian strategy. You cannot conceptualize fully how God wants to use us as individual Christians until we appreciate fully what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And by that I don't mean you have to be a member of Valley Bible Church. By that I mean you are part of the people of God who are called to gather together, to serve together, to love together, to edify together, to bear one another's burdens together around the world. And you have a place in that that God has purposed you for. Find it and live it out. Because if we fail to come together as one body then we are dismembered. If we fail to function as we are gifted, we are disabled. And if we forget to trust God's wisdom in putting you where he has put you, then we are deceived. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is 
to watch your spirit working out through the lives of so many here at Valley Bible Church and to know that that is being repeated throughout churches around the world whose ministries look so different, whose contexts look so different, languages that are different, challenges that are different, opportunities that are different, but it is all still one spirit pulling in from the full diversity of human life, giving the full diversity of spiritual gifts to serve the single body of Christ under the single head, which is Christ. And we pray that you would make us for our part faithful and joyful in carrying this out, that Christ's body would bring glory to him in all that we do. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.